Ah, do you hear about the um, guy whose uh, girlfriend was a square root of minus 100? Uh, she was a perfect 10 and totally imaginary. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Dr. Adam Jones. Today we are interviewing with uh, Dr. Carl, who's a real doctor. And, mate, he's a superstar. He's one of our, both of our most favorite persons in the world. Probably one of the most clever and intelligent people I've ever come across as well. Yeah, this is round two with Dr. Carl. Twelve months ago, we spoke to him as well. And this time, we spoke to him about his brand new book, Vital Science. We talked a lot about climate change, a little bit about space, a little bit about being a genius, etc. Yeah, all that stuff, renewable energy, energy storage, getting off coal, all that kind of uh, green kind very, of left hippie stuff, kind of stuff, yeah. but, which is extremely important. Yeah, 12 months ago, man, I wasn't on it, but I'm on it now. The world's cooked. Yeah. We need to save it. Let's go and save the world with Dr. Carl. We'd like to start one of the big themes in uh, your book this year, Vital Science, and last year, The Carl Universe and Everything, is this idea of uh, climate change. So I think a good place to start is how the greenhouse effect actually works, because from my understanding, you wrote about this uh, a long time ago as well. Yeah, it's uh, complicated. So what happens is the sun is really hot in the centre, but the surface is about 5,000, 6,000 degrees, see? And um, it broadcasts its power, the sun's power, at us. And so when the sun is directly overhead at the equator, about half that power... Uh, roughly 500, half a kilowatt, uh, comes out as heat, and the other half of the power comes out as light. So the light we see, but the heat we don't see, and it heats up the ground, heats up the ground to about 15 degrees C, and then the heat goes back up. So on the way in, with the heat at a temperature of around 6,000, 5,000 degrees centigrade, the uh, carbon dioxide does not interact with the infrared. The, um, the, you can do the physics. And so it basically just passes straight past it, doesn't see it, it doesn't interact with it, it's invisible to it. But when it hits the ground, uh, heats up the ground to about 15 degrees C, then radiates back up into space, and at that temperature, the carbon dioxide interacts with the heat returning to space. So the heat just heads out into space, and assume there's no carbon dioxide there, you end up with a balance depending on how close the Earth is to the sun and various other factors. With the carbon dioxide there and other water vapour, which we won't go into, uh, and other greenhouse gases, we won't go into that right now, but when, when it comes up, it hits the carbon dioxide, it gets absorbed, and then it gets re-radiated. If it got re-radiated entirely into space, well, there'd be no change. Um, comes in, the carbon dioxide goes out, but the carbon dioxide radiates out the heat in all directions. And roughly half of it goes into space, and roughly half of it goes back down to the ground. The amount coming down to the ground right now is around the heat output of 400,000 Hiroshima bombs per day. Every day, 400,000 Hiroshima bombs worth of heat that would previously, pre-industrial revolution, have gone, kept on going on its way into space, comes back down to the ground. And um, of that heat, and we've measured that on the ground with the air temperature going up, and we've also measured it uh, in from space with the satellites picking up less uh, heat coming from the Earth into space over the last 30 years. But of that heat that gets reflected down, um, only about... Um, a small percentage, 
stays in the atmosphere. 93% goes into the ocean. If all of that heat stayed in the atmosphere, the air temperature would be, I don't know, 70 degrees C and we'd all be dead. But 93% of it goes into the ocean um, and we've measured it heating up the upper levels of the ocean, the top kilometre or so. It hasn't worked its way down to the lower levels. And so, interestingly enough, the denialists, when they read this, said, aha, the scientists have said that the, the, the um, so-called heat from carbon dioxide is not heating up the lower depths of the ocean. That's right, we said that. It's heating up the upper, de- upper levels, the top kilometre, and they com- conveniently ignore that. So the denialists are actually going out of their way to deliberately cherry-pick the evidence. Yeah, so that's how the greenhouse effect works. Is there a... It sounds like people have known this for a long time. Yeah, it goes back over a century, over about two centuries, and people started talking that it might be visible in the atmosphere. By visible, it might be apparent. And in the early 1920s and 30s, there are articles saying, well, you know, we are burning an awful lot of carbon dioxide, but a lot lot of coal and uh, other fossil fuels, but there's no way that we'll actually do anything in the near future. And they didn't account for the absolute almost exponential increase in the amount of coal and other fossil fuels that we're burning. And so we did actually burn enough and then it fits in with the mathematics. So we began to see it first. Uh, Well, I started reading the New Scientist early on and in the early 1970s there were articles saying, oh, yeah, it might happen, might not happen. 1973, Munich Re, the world's largest reinsurance company. So there's insurance companies who insure you and me. And then there's reinsurance companies who are the big boys and they play with the other insurance companies. So whenever an insurance company takes on an insurance policy, it also takes a policy the other way in case there is a flood. And so they try to balance their bets. And Munich Re, RE, is the world's largest reinsurance company. In 1973, it said there's something going on and we're just going to start factoring this thing, uh, these increased incidents of bad weather insurance events, um, into the premiums. Now, just a little diversion here. Um, with regard to tobacco, it's well accepted now. Everybody knows it, except for a sm- small number of people who deny it, um, including Nick Minchin, who was a senator. Uh, he denied that tobacco was bad for you. Um, but... And he's also a climate denialist. But we all admit that uh, cigarette smoking is bad for your health and the longer you do it, the worse it is. The insurance companies started doing something about it before the doctors. Um, It was factored into insurance premiums. Now, it was nothing personal. They'd say, hi, Adam. Uh, Yeah, you want an insurance policy? So what? Oh, you uh, smoke cigarettes? Okay, you're going to die sooner. Therefore, you'll have to pay more. Nothing personal. It was just business because you're going to die sooner. And they uh, saw the dangers of cigarette smoking before the medical people officially wrote a statement saying, yes, it is really bad for you. And in the same way, in 1973, they said we can see what they call then the greenhouse effect, then call global warming, then call climate change. We could see it happening on Earth. We're just charging more for it. The scientists, the climate scientists, they needed more evidence. Um, You'd think you'd need a lot of evidence. You're going to charge more people for it. But the scientists had a higher burden of proof. And it took them until 1989 before they said uh, something along the lines of um, this episode of global warming is real because there have been previous ones and they also said this one is caused by us 
It's not one of the natural ones that happened. And they said it's going to get really expensive. And from 1989 to 1991, the fossil fuel companies didn't do too much about it. They had emails in the background. They admitted among themselves that, oh, my God, you look 30, 40 years down the line, it's going to get really messy. It's going to get really expensive. It's going to get really bad. And look up the New York Times. Um, you can get one month's subscription for free or $2. Uh, I forget which. And um, look up the Exxon emails. And the fossil fuel companies basically said, look, this uh, greenhouse effect is real. Jeez, what are we going to do? Uh, option one, we change ourselves from an energy company that gets its energy from fossil fuels to an energy company that does not get its energy from fossil fuels. This is obviously the right sort of thing to do, the right thing to do, but it's going to get messy and um, uh, it could get complicated. And, and some of us might manage to navigate our way through to being huge energy companies, fabulously wealthy, and others might not. And the option number two was let's do business as usual and mount a very well-funded cover-up campaign. So they went for option two. You can read about it in the book uh, Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes, O-R-E-S-K-E-S. Wow. That's absolutely crazy. Unbelievable. And if you said that 1989, well, that's still – we're 30 years down the track and I, I feel like it's there's still no major solution that we're still almost going down the same path. Oh, well, okay, okay, you're right. Let me just do a little diversion before I come to that. Uh, first diversion, now you're thinking, how could a fossil fuel company or a big company be immoral? Well, big tobacco is still immoral and saying that uh, secondhand smoke doesn't hurt. Look, vaping's not really bad. And big alcohol, well, uh, in the month of August in the year 2018, advertisements appeared all around Australian hospitals saying it is not known if smoking is bad for a woman who is pregnant. Oh, The exact opposite is true. It is known that smoking is bad. Now, this is big alcohol. So they were perfectly prepared to tell lies. Nothing personal. They didn't deliberately want that your spouse would... I'm talking to two males here, both called Adam. That your (laughs) spouse would have a baby with fetal alcohol syndrome, a long, alco- uh, long filter, that's a big distance between the bottom of the nose and the upper lip, and various mental uh, disabilities. They don't specifically want that you should, your spouse should have that. They're just in the business of selling alcohol, of and that would be just collateral damage. No overall moral involvement. Mm. And as you were saying before, I badly, rudely interrupted you there, Dr. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I'm just off. Uh, I feel like on one hand, it's sort of like that, obviously, insurance companies and big big corporations, they've got this immediate, uh, direct financial incentive as opposed to individuals and governments who it's somewhere down the track. We need to do something, but there's not that immediate, direct yeah, impetus to, to make change. Um, yes, there, well, I, I wrote about this in one of my previous books, um, about how one to 2% of the population have psychopathic tendencies. They don't have much empathy. They're totally immoral. <clears throat> They'll do you over whenever they can. They're, they can be really charming and where they end up depends on a two by two grid of whether they're intelligent or not intelligent and whether they're violent or not violent. And if they're intelligent and not violent, they'll end up rising to positions of power in government, in academic institutions, in corporations, because they have no morals. And if you think back in your past, you'll probably think of somebody who did something bad to you, and you've thought, why? No reason. 
Mm. Yeah, I can get away with it. Mm. And uh, they're kept in line by the laws of our society. So they've got this weird situation now in Victoria where if you as an individual kill a cat, you can go to jail. But if you as the boss of a big corporation allow unsafe working practices that allow a human to die, you'll get a fine. Mm. That's unbelievable. Well, it's time for... The trouble is the corporations have got so big that they're now as big as some governments. And in some cases, if they pay to a re-election fund for a political party, they, the numbers are they get about a 1,000 times back. Mm-hmm. So you put in $10,000 to re-elect this party or that party and you get $10 million back in tax rebates. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of own the parties and the parties don't necessarily reflect what the people who voted for them wanted. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I think we read in a similar book um, it was saying how the corporations are obliged to do what's best for the shareholders rather than what's best for the, the general public and the shareholders are, are kind of like one step back, um, not really caring about what the corporations are doing or who they invest in. So if they're legally obliged to do the best for the shareholders, um, sometimes if you're meant to dig oil under a reef, the best thing you can do is for the shareholders is to dig that reef up, grab the oil, um, but as a whole for society, it's a, it's a horrible thing to do. Well, yes and no. Read the book by um, Dennis, uh, D-N-N-I-S-S, uh, called Econobabble. I've forgotten his top name. but there's Richard. Not, Richard Dennis. Thank you. Uh, Econobabble. And you'll find that, in fact, they're not legally obliged okay. to do the best for shareholders. Um, there's an obligation to do good for the shareholders, and it's changed from they used to, the corporations used to put a lot of money into planning for the future and maybe 20, 30% uh, went into dividends. Now it's virtually all going into dividends. So they're not really planning for the future mm. and investing in the future as much as they used to. Um, and he, there's a whole lot of things he talks about. Uh, but you're right, the corporations now have an, a huge amount of control over government policy. Mm. And so governments are there for the long term, or used to be, and now not so much. Mm. Fantastic. So which is why I tell people, you don't like who's, what, what's happening in politics, run for politics yourself. Yeah. We'll definitely get to that. You sold, <laughs> you, you sold us on the idea last time we were here. Yeah. Um, we'll like to get back was to I this. Was I mean picking on you? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, definitely encourage It was great. You. It was a kick up the ass. Well, uh, if, you, if you spend a lot of time shouting at the TV... Yeah. Oh, you're wasting your, air, <laughs> yeah. your energy, man. Mm. <laughs> Definitely. So you, earlier you talked a little bit about the climate sceptics. Yeah. One of the, a few of the big reasons they're sceptical would be that um, the Earth's always been warming. And colding. Yeah, it's, it's been through many cycles. So if you look at it over the last um, 600 million years, roughly, roughly every 150 million years we have a big chill and we think this is related to the Earth's orbit around the centre of the galaxy where it goes up and down and crosses the big gas dust lanes in the middle. And so we had big ice ages now 150 million years ago, 300, 450, 600. 600 million years ago it was snowball Earth. But then... Once the Ice Age happens, then you have the shorter-term thing of the Milankovitch effect, which then brings the Ice Ages on on regular pulses, the mini Ice Ages. And so from three million years ago... Oh, by the way, the three factors involved from Milankovitch effect, uh, Milutin, 
Milankovic, a Serbian astronomer of the 1920s. The three factors are, number one, that the Earth's orbit changes on a 100,000-year cycle from circular, kind of circular to kind of more elliptical and back again, 100,000-year cycle. On a 42,000-year cycle, roughly, the angle of the tilt changes between 21.5 and I think 24.5. At the moment, we're 23.5 going down to 21.5. That's a 42,000-year cycle. And on a 24,000-year cycle, the Earth slowly processes, which is a difficult world to explain without uh, a movie. So just think of a top. And you set a top spinning and slowly it sweeps out, while it's spinning really fast, it slowly sweeps out uh, a complete circle. It's just tilted off its axis a little bit and that's what the Earth does on a 24,000-year cycle. Okay, put that all together. From 3 million years ago, sorry about the numbers, from 3 million years ago to 1 million years ago, we'd have 42,000 years of Ice Age followed by, I don't know, eight or 10,000 years of non-Ice Age. What's an ice age? Ice is one kilometre thick over Germany and New York. The water level uh, drops in the oceans to make all this ice across the earth. drops by about 100, 125 metres. A million years ago, it switched over to 100,000 years on and 20,000 years off. And about 18, 15, whatever it is, 1,000 years ago, we drifted out of the last ice age. We were going to go into the next one any time in the next couple of thousand years, but at our current levels of carbon dioxide, it's been put off for at least 50,000 years. So these are the natural cycles and what we've done is throw so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that we've started it heating up when it should be cooling down nice so there is there is these natural cycles but we've completely thrown it way off what can we what what's the future what can we do about it in terms of either reducing the amount we're putting out uh finding alternatives what what what's some of the most promising things that that people could or should be doing at the moment? Um, the first thing is that we can fix it and we can reverse it. So we can, and there's a report come out just this week from the United States government saying that it's really bad, uh, it's going online with the predictions we made back 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they're all uh, coming true, as opposed to the nihilists who deny all of them, um, and that we can do something about it. Uh, it's really bad, but we can do it. So the first thing is we stop dumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, and with electricity, we can do that in 10 years. With transport, 15 years. With agriculture, which is about roughly one quarter of the, Earth's carbon, of, of the human race's carbon dioxide output. With um, agriculture and livestock, and uh, we can reverse that. In, we can stop that in about 30, 40 years because the animals and the plants have DNA and they'll try and fight us. But we can do it. And there's other things we can do. So we can very quickly get to uh, not putting any carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And you say, but that's impossible. Think of the 7th of uh, December, 1941, Pearl Harbor. And within nine months the, in America, the number of cars being made for the domestic market was zero. And they'd switched over entirely onto a war footing. And so they were pumping out things like the big B-17 bomber, a huge thin crew of 10, um, could fly a couple of thousand kilometres, 3,000 kilometres there and back at 400 kilometres an hour, carry a big load. Um, and they were pumping them out of just one car factory, and there were lots of car factories, uh, at the rate of not one a month, one an hour. Right, okay. So uh, that brings us to the second stage. So firstly, we go into the war footing, and we stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We just go renewables. And then uh, secondly, we 
pull the carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. And already in Switzerland and other places around the world, there are companies who have come up with machines that do this. In the case of the Swiss one, uh, 25 million machines will pull out the entire output of carbon dioxide for, the, for one calendar year from the human race back. Wow. How do they, how 25 do million. Now, 25 million is a big number, but we make uh, about 70 million cars every year. All we have to do is say this is our priority and we're going to do this. Uh, and where are we going to put the carbon? Well, we're going to put it back where we shouldn't have got it from in the first place. It was dumb to take it out. We just put it back. It'll cost more than taking it out. Um, now, the, exa- uh, the thing is that you're going to say, well, it's expensive. It will be expensive in the short term but cheaper in the long term. And think back to slavery as an example of the fossil fuel companies. When slavery was finally banned in the United States and the United Kingdom, um, here's a rhetorical question for you. Um, Who do you think got compensation? Uh, Was it the slaves or the slave owners? I'm guessing the owners. owners, And were they doing the right thing? No. Were they Mm. immoral? Totally. Did they get compensation? Yes. Did Mm. the slaves get compensation? No. What's going to happen? is that the fossil fuel companies will say, oh, we're no longer making $400 billion a year. Give us some money. Rack mm. off. <laughs> Rack off, hairy legs. You get nothing. <laughs> How does that machine work to suck the, the carbon out of the atmosphere? No. Oh, you know. Uh, by the way, it's besides nice. the, the... There's various different ways. Um, they all involve energy. Uh, and there's, besides the mechanical ways, there's biological ways of doing it as well. Uh, biochar, etc., etc., etc. There's fungi. There's a whole lot of ways of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and we have to do this for the good of the future generations. And it will work out cheaper in the long run. Um, and the one, one way is simply one, one thing to consider is just the health costs. So in Australia, we think we've got pretty clean air, and in Sydney and Melbourne, you can go down, down to the water, and uh, and in Perth, you can see the sun rise or set over the ocean. You can't do that in Asia because the pollution is so bad. You can't do it in Europe. In Europe, um, you can't see it happen. I, I'm, I sort of make it a little habit, a little fun game. Uh, each time I come to a new city to go to the tallest building and then sit there at sunset and watch the sun set. Um, and it's wonderful. You see the traffic flowing out. You talk with the locals, how you're going, where you're from. And then you see the traffic flooding back in after the sun's gone down. In Europe and in Asia, the sun vanishes into a cloud of pollution before it kisses the horizon. In Europe, it's about one sun diameter. In Asia, it's about two or three. Uh, we're so lucky. But, okay, the point is that even in Australia, with our clean air, in Sydney and in Melbourne, in each city, over 2,000 people die every year from air pollution caused by burning stuff. Burning stuff is bad for the lungs. It's kind of like cigarettes are bad for your health, or the earth is a sphere. You know, it's pretty obvious, but nevertheless, we're still burning stuff. And we just have to stop it and it'll work out cheaper. Yeah. One of the things we absolutely love to burn to create energy is coal. And from what I understand, as we try and get off coal, we need to replace something with a base load power so we can use renewables like the sun and the wind and everything like that, which is good for um, like the peak electricity, or the um, which isn't the base load power. But when we're... What do you think is the best solution for uh, using energy storage to actually capture the wind and 
and uh, the, the, the sun for when it's not blowing and it's not sunny. Okay, question without notice. You've heard about um, high, uh, Snowy Mountain Hydro 2. How many places do you think, how many locations are there in Australia where we can use stored hydro power? Um, Give me a number. 100? Uh, other Let's item? Just, I guess. I'll go low ball. I'll go 20. 22,000. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So um, there's a whole bunch of different uh, renewables, 17 roughly. Um, for example, between Australia and New Guinea and Indonesia uh, is 10% of all the tidal energy on Earth. 10%. The yeah. amount of that that is captured is zero. Mm. Right, okay. So if you go to the University of Melbourne and look up their zero carbon plan, you'll see two documents, one for two meg, which takes me took me two hours to read, one 10 meg, bigger version, of course, with more detail, took me 10 hours to read. There's 70 renewables, we can use them and they can cover the entire world. We don't need to go nuclear um, and uh, we can provide baseload with it. For two weekends running, uh, last weekend and the one before it, uh, the electricity has gone down in Australia's capital city. So two weekends ago, I was coming back from Canberra. We went to a town called Collector. The electricity was down. Uh, couldn't have a coffee, uh, only have gas, and we were talking about um, renewables. And then uh, yesterday, I saw a tweet from that Nobel Prize winner, uh, Brian Schmidt, who uh, discovered helped discover dark energy, mm. vice-chancellor of ANU, said... Uh, um, the grid went down in Canberra for three quarters, of, and I didn't notice for three quarters of an hour because the sun and the solar cells and the batteries on my farm kept me going. So, mm. in Australia, right near the very centre of, of power, the capital city, uh, on two successive weekends, the grid fell over. This so-called fair income power <laughs> fell over. So, um, we, we there's 70 renewables. So, there's one Spanish island that became the first island in the world to go totally renewable. And they use two, which is um, stored hydro and wind turbines, which are kind of married. So, the wind blows... Uh, because where it is. You see, the renewables you use depend on where you are. And the other side of the coin is we've got to have a worldwide grid of electricity. It'll come. And wow. so um, you, on this island, they use electricity, they use the wind to make electricity, which powers the island, and also pumps seawater into a convenient extinct volcano not everybody has a convenient extinct volcano <laughs> but if you do use it and then when the wind slows down then the water comes down and keeps them going you just Perfect. use what's local and you need some more thinking and the thing is the health costs are enormous so in china the one reason one very big reason the chinese are going to become the world's first uh, renewable superpower is the health costs and there was a paper uh, talking about the cost of their hawaii river fo- uh, policy which is to give free or very cheap coal and electricity to everybody north of the hawaii river and the cost to the society was uh, that half a billion people lost something half a billion is a big number um, it's about half of China's population. And what the half a billion people lost was five years of their life, right, from the dirty air. So uh, my son's been in China where you couldn't see 30 metres in Beijing, right. And I had to stay in their hotel room with the filters going on the aircon, and even then their eyes were still stinging all day 
all night, right? Okay, so it's not as bad as that in Australia. And so if you're looking at losing five years of life expectancy, well, in the five years before they died, they were incurring significant health medical hospital costs. Um, in the five years before that, they probably weren't working at full uh, efficiency. So you, you're losing effectively 15 years of working life out of a 40-year span. That's nearly half. That's kind of crazy to uh, do that in what the Chinese have is a planned economy. Now you think, hang on, but they're a dictatorship. They can get away with this sort of stuff. Well, just remember the words of Abraham Lincoln. He said with regard to democracy, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but if you can fool half the people one day every four years, you've got a democracy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So the Chinese are going down that pathway simply because they're losing about one-third of all of their worker output from dirty air. Ridiculous. Exactly. Crazy. But but if you've got a company that can then uh, get a thousand to one return on paying for the re-election campaign, well, luckily in China, I'm using the word luckily, luckily, uh, in China there is no re-election campaign. We'll just leave that the way it is. Not going to even talk about that. I That's saw a different an, thing. I saw an ad on TV recently saying Australia's got this clean coal and we're exporting this clean coal. Australia's got the best coal. Is that just absolutely ridiculous? It's like saying black is white. Yes, it is correct. It is totally ridiculous. Um, If you burn coal to make carbon dioxide, um, then you're making carbon dioxide. Maybe what they're referring to is the... They're doing uh, cherry-picking of the truth here. You can have coal... Uh, being brown coal, which is full of all sorts of crap, Mm. uh, all the way up to, I think, anthracite, anthracite, which is um, not thermal coal that is burnt for heat, but rather met coal for metallurgical purposes, for making steel. And so it's got very few impurities. So maybe they're saying, oh, well, we've got this uh, coal which is 99.9% carbon mm. as opposed to 60% carbon, so it's clean coal. It's like, uh, it's like can, we've got the healthiest cigarettes. Is yeah, that yeah, that's saying? right. We've got healthy cigarettes because <laughs> they've got pink writing on them or something. <laughs> yeah. Something totally illogical. Yeah. Another thing from your newest book is uh, fuel and, say, hydrogen as a future of fuel. Oh, and Bertha Benz. Yes. <laughs> it was a good story. That was a crazy story. You, did you like Bertha? Yeah. I fell in love with her. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. Okay, so the story goes that way back in the late 1800s, the um, internal combustion car had not arrived. The automobile had not arrived. And there were various people trying, and one of them was Carl Benz, as in Mercedes Benz. Um, and he was a really clever guy but he wasn't into test driving he was more of oh i've got this idea let's tinker with it oh yeah and let's drive it for 20 meters okay that works let's go for another now let's try something else and his wife was saying now you got to do a proper test drive and so finally on an unknown august day in the year 1888 early in the morning she got up with her two sons having left behind a deliberately confusing note saying we me and the kids i and the two kids we've gone off to see my mum and she didn't point out, we've, start, we've taken your car, the car. And by the way, she <laughs> was an engineer <laughs> herself. So this was the first car, the Power Wagon 3. And um, so they rolled it down the driveway because it was noisy and then started up and then off they took. Well, there are a few problems because he'd only ever driven it. Well, firstly, she was going to try and drive 100 kilometres to see her mother, but there was no road. You see, there, there were tracks 
for horses and wagons, but the wheel tracks didn't mean, you know, the wagons didn't you know, fit up with the wheel tracks of a car. So she, she just took any road. There were no road maps, so she went the wrong way because there were no road maps for, you know, for ordinary people for, to buy like you can today. And off she took. Um, and then one of the first problems with the car was that there was no fuel tank. It just had a big uh, float, you know, float level, you know, in the carburetor, um, and so. But it was a big one, and so she then had to stop at every single chemist shop on the way and knock off their benzene, and they wouldn't sell it to her because the benzene was being used as a dry cleaning fluid, and she was just buying their entire stock, mm. and so she did that. And there was also um, a problem: there was no oil pump because what do you need an oil pump from where you drive at only twenty meters? And so she had to keep on throwing oil into the top of the engine, and go straight through out the bottom and fall on the road and there was no sealed radiator because what do you need it for when you just do a short drive so she kept on having to stop and get water and um, it didn't have enough power so this engine about one and a half litres uh, nowadays they'd have anything from 100 to 250 kilowatts this thing had about one and a bit kilowatts mm-hmm. it had less grunt than your iron that you used to iron your clothes with and so it wouldn't go up hills and so the kids had to get out and push and there was this <laughs> extremely steep hill where she had to get some and shepherds and they all pushed up the hill and, and she said then from her, to her husband well you know uh, you've got to get yourself um, a, a gearbox with a lower gear in it you know obvious things that you realise after a while and then um, uh, the brakes were just wood pressing on metal and they had two characteristics firstly they didn't work and secondly mm-hmm. um, they wore out really quickly and so uh, she cut up the handbag and got some leather and made the first handbrake a, a proper foot brake and then got to her mother then came back again and the publicity was enormous and then suddenly the company got really wealthy and it just took off now think about the fact that she was taking the car for a test drive on a car without a petrol tank no oil pump no sealed radiator there were no roads there were no road maps there were no petrol stations that is the challenge facing us with aircraft aircraft are essential aircraft use about or generate about two to three percent of the world's carbon dioxide we've got to switch them over to run on something else um we're heading for batteries but for the heavy lifter where you're taking a couple of hundred people halfway around the world you're going to need some sort of liquid fuel with a high energy density little detour here talking about energy density uh you 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 see in the news that the price of oil per barrel has gone up to 70 or 100 or down to 50 or whatever a barrel of oil has the energy of two strong people working five days a week, eight hours a day for a whole year. Mm. So you can buy the labour of two strong men uh, for about a dollar to two dollars a week. It's a bargain. That's why fossil fuels took off. Now, to equal the energy density of one kilogram of petrol, or as the Americans foppishly call it, gasoline, to equal that energy density, you need, in the old days, half a tonne, 500 kilograms of lead-acid batteries. Mm. Half a ton. But now we're working our way down to 100 kilograms, and with the good lithium acid, lithium batteries, we're getting down to 50, down to 30. Lithium air batteries get up to about 10, uh, which is, but they're, they're in no way commercial. It's not like you can put them in your car right now, they're very experimental, but we're heading down that pathway. So with aeroplanes, you need a high energy density to get across, and the fuel is, I'm say, saying, uh, hydrogen. 
And uh, the planes, now the thing about hydrogen is that number one, it's got this incredibly high energy density, four times higher than kerosene. Kerosene mm. is jet fuel, you know. There's kerosene A, kerosene B, or jet fuel A and B, and one's better for lower temperatures, it doesn't freeze up. Um, and kerosene and hydrogen, hydrogen has four times the energy density per mass, which is good, but per volume, uh, it's one-sixth. It's, uh, so you need six times the volume mm. of kerosene in hydrogen, so you need six times as much volume of, of, of compressed hydrogen to have the same energy as the kerosene. And that, what that means is we go to the heavy lifters, like the 747 and the 380, and we reconfigure them that half of the fuselage is used for fuel, and the other half for humans. So you halve the payload of humans, but you can still carry a bunch of humans halfway around the fuel, halfway around the world, and you can still do commerce, you know, shifting of parcels, all that sort of stuff. It's just that we have to think differently. But that's impossible. You say, what about Bertha Benz, who took off in a car that didn't have a petrol tank, an oil pump, or a sealed radiator when there were no roads or petrol stations? She did it. We can do it. I think that's a good uh, example, a good analogy for one person, Carl, he's got the idea... And he keeps tinkering on the idea, whereas Bertha actually put it out in, into the world and, and decided to test it. Yeah. But, but one thing I want to mention, I've, I've just started in the 12 months since we last spoke to you, I've uh, started working for this Israeli fuel company that's doing hydrogen fuel, but, ah. not, but not compressed hydrogen. So one is obviously mm-hmm. compressing it to 700 times atmospheric pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a, using water as a carrier. So it's, the mixture is liquid stable. It's 60% water, 40%... Um, chemical mixture, mm-hmm. mainly a salt, borrow BH4, and it reacts with the catalyst to release the hydrogen. And where's the hydrogen stored? It's joined onto? Uh, so it's BH4, so half the... B, a B for boron? Yeah, boron, yeah. So one boron atom marries itself to four hydrogen atoms? Mm-hmm. And then does this then float in a liquid solution, does it? Yeah. And, yeah. and how much energy do you get per mass, per, per kilogram of water, per... Uh, I should have got the numbers. Hey? Ah, okay, because what we're trying to do is get the highest energy density possible. Mm. So they say that it's they, they're going to achieve twice the range of compressed hydrogen at 700 bar. For the same volume? For the same volume, Oh, yeah. well, okay. It's and your... without the safety concerns of compressing hydrogen and the expense of the whole ecosystem being super pressurised. Oh, sure. Uh, that, that costs energy. Uh, we're just working out how to do it and we'll get there. So I remember there was a huge change in cars uh, from 19, around 1990 when the computers came online, oh, sorry, became available to be small enough to put into a car. And at the same time, in that 10 years, around 1990, we put a huge amount of knowledge, of, of brain power, into working on car engines, and suddenly they got this incredible jump in efficiency and power. So as an example, I actually had a car, one car, Mitsubishi Lancer, for a quarter of a century. It had a 1,400cc engine. I just loved it to pieces. That was after I... So I got out of the big American iron into this small car because it was more reliable, I know, boring. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and then after a while, I ended up driving a university car. Now, here we go. The university car had an engine that was nearly three times the size, two and a half times the size, the engine. Um, The power was about three and a half times as much as my Mitsubishi Lancer. The weight of the car was twice as much, and the fuel economy was the same. Mm. Wow. 
So that's how we went. We, we massively increased the power output and the fuel efficiency and the cleanliness. The engines got much cleaner. And it took, there was a 10-year window and it just suddenly all happened at once. And we'll go through the same thing with hydrogen and with batteries once we start applying human brain power towards it. Yeah, awesome. In your, in your book, and this is something we talked about last year as well, was the, the idea of space travel and in your book, you say how it's been one of your dreams your whole life to travel into space. With all these improvements in technology and iterations in um, a lot of the, the, the energy density and all these things we're talking about now, what do you think the odds are of yourself actually still going into space? Oh, that depends entirely on how much the politicians make it happen. Because in some parts of the world, as Mao Zedong said, uh, power grows out of the barrel of a rifle. And in other parts of the world, power grows out of the parliament, out of politics, Mm. out of politicians. That'll depend entirely upon where the politicians decide to put our energies, and that's you guys. I actually had somebody ring up a radio show saying, look, we're spending too much money on space travel. We should instead be putting it on improving the planet. And I say, look, I agree with you about improving the planet. Let's look at the hard numbers. So around the world, out of a budget of a world budget generated of about roughly $80 trillion. That's how much the whole world generates each year. Out of that budget, the fossil fuel companies get 6% given to them for free as a subsidy. Out of every dollar, they get $0.06 given to them as a subsidy because of their power. Mm. The um, peak that was spent on space travel for the Americans was 2% of their budget, in nine in in the nineteen sixties, worldwide it's down to about zero point zero two percent of the budget. So if you're comparing fossil fuel companies and uh, space travel, you're looking at about four hundred five hundred to one. Mm-hmm. So do you think that we should concentrate on stopping space travel entirely and let the fossil fuel companies keep on getting six cents out of every dollar mm-hmm. as a subsidy because they control uh, the governments? And the guy said, "Well, I'm just going to have to check that," which is dead right. He's, he's, don't trust authority. Nullus in verba. Don't trust authority. Check it up for yourself. Go to the, go to the source. Mm. I was thinking you were going to mention what, do, what are your thoughts on the private sector looking at things like uh, what Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX and Jeff Bezos with ah. uh, Blue... What was it called? Blue... Blue Origin. Blue, Blue Origin. Something. They're, they're uh, building on the hard work that the government agencies have done around the world. Plus, they're getting subsidies, massive uh, big contracts. So this subsidy thing is interesting. So in the early days of integrated circuits for computers, um, the big companies that were making uh, these highly sophisticated chips for the military were being paid $100 each for each chip, regardless of whether it worked or not. Mm. That's called a subsidy. Mm, But because of that, the Americans were able to get this massive advance and get this massive lead in highly sophisticated electronics. So to some degree, Musk and Bezos are still getting subsidies. Um, But their way of thinking is good and the reusable spacecraft is brilliant. But there's a limit to what you can do with rockets getting into space. So for long-term space travel, we have to get past the current situation, which is basically where you get a big cylinder full of, full of, full of something that goes bang, put some humans at the pointy end, light the wick, and eight minutes later you're in orbit uh, 400 kilometres up, doing about 27,000 kilometres per hour. Um, I, I, I like the ladder to space. 
to get us up there. So you get a geostationary satellite, extrude a cable to Earth, and then one the other way to counterbalance it. And uh, twenty, what is it, thirty-six thousand kilometres long? Then you just run electric cables up it. Mm-hmm. You, you run sort of ele- elevators up it. And then once we're in space, we need to get the fusion engines so that we can squirt around the solar system at about one percent of the speed of light, one tenth of the speed of light. Mm-hmm. That's where I see us going uh, long term. That sounds absolutely crazy. But phenomenal. Well, <laughs> I'm excited. I really yeah, want to go to uh, well, think, think, think back to the 7th, of, sorry, the 13th of December, 1903. No, 17th of December. 17th of December, 1903. I think that was the date that the Wright brothers had their first controlled artificial flight. Now, imagine you go to the parents mm. of a newborn baby and say, guess what? Your baby is going to see humans walk on the moon. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. We did that in less than one human lifetime. Yeah. We can absolutely. do it. We, can, we, we humans are great. We've just got to be allowed to expand. The trouble is, we've got this um, philosophy at the moment where the big businesses are taking over. So, if you read the Oxfam reports in the year 2010, to equal the wealth of the bottom half of the planet, the, bottom, the poorest three and a half billion people, to equal their wealth, took 343 billionaires in 2010. By 2016, it drop down to eight all of them male all of them white now i'm sure it's a coincidence but 343 and eight are both cubed numbers so seven cubed and two cubed i don't understand the philosophy that's just coincidence. i think <laughs> next, is, coincidence. next is one cubed yeah, yeah but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but the uh philosophy the uh, i find it useful to get the big picture uh and the thing to realize here is that when people talk about in the economic pages and so forth when they talk about the money trickling down to the poor no, it's being sucked up. So I'm old enough to remember that uh, you could run a family on one person's wages, buy a house, buy a car and have an overseas holiday once a year on one person's wages. Now you've got two people working and it's not 37 and a half or 40 hours a week. It's longer than that and they can't afford to buy a house. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, we're being screwed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, the toys are cheaper, yeah. you know, like TVs are cheaper yeah. and some cars are cheaper, but the important stuff like education, like yeah. housing, like um, welfare, medical costs, they're way more expensive. We've been screwed. And the way to get it back is uh, for you guys to become politicians. Fantastic. Well, yeah. what the, you, you spoke a lot about that last time and this time as well, and it sounds like that we do need good people going into politics. Yeah, because people say, the, I'm not going to go into politics because they're all crooked. Yeah. That's right. If you don't go in there, the crooked people will remain there and they'll still be crooked. If you go in there, there'll be one honest person. What's the uh, the first steps or what, do you, what, what does going into politics mean? What does the... The normal, you know, twenty-two-year-old Joe uh, or Jane sitting on their couch thinking, "This sounds like a good idea. I should go into politics." What's the, what should they be doing? I don't know. I went in the really dumb way by getting angry at the TV and going out with being. So a politician came on TV and said, "Look, uh, we got uh, voted into power because we said we put in a railway line, but now we're not. We're going to put in buses because buses <laughs> carry as many people as trains." Mm. And at that stage, I then started to run for the Climate Change Coalition um, and it cost an awful lot, uh, but I had a great education. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe st- not everybody has got the personality for going into politics, but support people who will make it a point to be to get a world view. Not everybody... Um, Here's a little diversion. Um, in Australian politics at the moment is particularly nasty and they'll tell lies about you um, and they say, oh, well, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. 
And it's kind of like saying the biggest bully wins. Mm. And I think we need to call those people out for being absolute ratbags and bullies and misogynists as well. Um, so maybe re- join a political party uh, just for fun uh, as a low-level worker and just see what goes on. Study politics at university. Go for local council. I, I don't know, just... Instead of shouting at the TV or mm. the news, Take do the responsibility. or support somebody. But be aware that you need to get good politics, people in politics, and there's many different pathways, and I don't know what they are. Yeah. I, I do remember talking to somebody who had studied politics at university, and their knowledge on a theoretical level was huge. Mm. And if you combine that with actually working as a low-level grunt, where you keep your big mouth shut and you keep your big ears and your big eyes open, you learn a lot Mm. and then you can walk away from them. And um, it doesn't hurt to work in the belly of the beast as long as you keep your morals. I've I've worked for some particularly nasty organisations and learnt an awful lot from Mm. them. So maybe dive in and just learn from how they are really behind the scenes. So uh, that was awesome um, general advice about politics with education so expensive now and at the same time the whole world changing at such a fast rate Mm -hmm. what do you think what advice would you give to people today if they want to learn uh and have a have a great career um probably another way of framing it is would you go down the same path that you went of of having the education in electrical engineering biomedical and going down the university education um so strongly um, I'd go with whatever works now. I was lucky enough to grow up in a time when the Australian government, wait for it, this is really funny, they thought education was a worthwhile investment in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> well, well, nowadays, education is a short-term profit and long-term loss. And so if you look at the latest OECD report, Organisation for um, Cooperation and Development, um, of the 35 countries involved, the one, uh, and they're looking at uh, massive disparity between the poor and the wealthy, Australia is fourth, not from the top, from the bottom. Oh, oh my God. So in Australia, we've got uh, probably the highest percentage of involvement of students in private schools, about 30%. The rest of the world is about 10%. And secondly, you've got the weird situation where I think this is right. Australia, the federal parliament, the federal government in Australia is the only government in the world that gives more money to the private companies that have private schools than it does to government schools. Wow. That's bizarre. <laughs> yes, it's bizarre, isn't it? Mm. And then if you look at what works, and you go to the Scandinavian countries and Germany, uh, what works is best is a free uh, government education system where all of the money is spread around evenly. So that doesn't work. So what you could do is go to Germany and get your degree there. It doesn't hurt to another, learn another language. Maybe before you go um, and pick up other languages, do a course here in Australia on grammar. Because um, if you're going to learn the romantic languages, such as French and Italian and Spanish and Romanian, you need to know grammar. And you'll say, what's the difference between a past participle and a subjunctive and a future tense? I don't know any of these words you're telling me. (laughs) So it's not hard. You can just learn it. Um, uh, Get an education, work, um, keep your morals, uh, make mistakes and realise that uh, you're going to make a mistake. Try not to make the same mistake more than once. Mm. Twice is okay. Three is getting to be a bit of a habit. (laughs) And I've made a few mistakes. I've made lots of mistakes on the way. 
And on the other hand, when you make mistakes, always admit it as soon as possible. Don't try and cover it up. Nice. I so I, yeah, I do, I do that. Uh, I've made mistakes on air a few times, quite a mm. few times, uh, maybe once every two or three weeks, where I get out, I actually say something that I genuinely believe is something, and I'm wrong, mm. and people bring it to my attention. And I thought, my gosh, how can I make that? How can I be so silly? I bring it. Uh, I, I apologise for mm. it the next week and try to set the record straight. Yeah, but listening to you, you always, if you don't know, you say you don't know, and mm. then from there, admitting that you don't know, you can actually learn but if you assume that you know everything then what can you learn it's so hard people have great difficulty in saying they don't know and i love this um in science where people say now you're familiar with the quantization of the pdf levels (laughs) of boron and you just say not tell me and you throw the obligation on them to tell you and suddenly you're getting a very good education it would take you two hours on wikipedia to getting it in five minutes from there yeah and then you say hey i don't get that bit and say it's the best thing you can do to say i don't understand that say it again in a different way nice i think that's come to the end of our serious questions i've got some less serious oh goody light-hearted ones yeah oh which is by my latest book you don't have to you're still (laughs) my best friend that's vital science it's got weird stuff in there like cockroach milk and how every planetary body in our solar system that has a a hard surface and an atmosphere also has sand dunes so venus earth mars um, pluto (laughs) we've all got sand dunes and titan yeah, okay. I love it. It's crazy. And uh, next comment or question, silly question time, yeah. Later on. <laughs> um, there are no silly questions, yeah. The first one is to throw Adam Jones under the bus. Yep. 12 months ago, he'd uh, when we walked into your house, he'd quit coffee, quit gluten and quit dairy. Uh, and you, you showed him the light and he's back on all of them now, more so than ever. <laughs> A little bit of coffee is good for most people. Uh, gluten is bad for those people who are genuinely generally have celiac disease or and for another uh eight out of every thousand people who have a softer version for the rest of it's uh it's great we've evolved for it nice and uh <laughs> what was the other one lactose yeah milk's good it's, it, you, basically you're going to lay down all the calcium you'll ever have in your bones the maximum by the time you hit your early 20s after that it either stays the same or goes down you can't lay down any extra. You've got to lay down. So get into that milk. Milk is not bad for you. Um, uh, doesn't Unless, of course, you're like, well, for two-thirds of the world it is bad for them. They can't have a milkshake because they are lactose intolerant. And so they can have a bit of milk in a cup of tea. You see the lactose uh, gene arose in Hungary about 7,000 years ago and then four times separately in Africa about 4,000 years ago. So if you're from that part of the world, you can have a milkshake. <laughs> uh, and two thirds of the world can't have a whole milkshake. They wow. can't break down the lactose into uh, its two smaller molecules, galactose and sugar. Nice. I've got a, another lighthearted yeah. one. Yeah. In, the, in the twelve months since we uh, last spoke, I've uh, I've become a genius, uh, or I was recognised as a genius. Wow. How? Uh, did an IQ test. Just got yeah. a, a oh. high score. So what was your number? Uh, One fifty one. Jeez. I'm only one hundred and ten. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the question he of, seems to find a way to drop it into every time we record it somehow gets dropped in that he's a genius yeah, <laughs> this is the first time I've mentioned it. I didn't want to just uh, mention it the question off the back is just having that score is pretty meaningless what do, what's the actual next level application of that that ah, geniusness how do you what, apply the knowledge oh, that's up to you what you got to do is find Okay, the Americans have a saying called spinning the wheels, which means you've got a really big engine and uh, you hit the accelerator hard and then the back wheels suddenly spin. This is old American iron and you're not going anywhere. You're burning up fuel, you're using up energy, you're not going anywhere. 
in my case, with my relatively low IQ of 110, <laughs> just barely above average in that two-thirds of the population between 85 and 115, I don't spin the wheels. What you need to do is just, it'll come to you in time. Uh, well, I'm sorry to give you unwanted advice, but That's over a period good. of time you'll work out where you can put your energies best and use that for good. Mm. I like it. Maybe don't, don't know what it is. No idea. No idea. You'll find that one out. <laughs> Maybe you'll become a rap singer or something. Yeah. I'd say unlikely, unfortunately. Um, we always ask authors, you know, what, what books they recommend. Mm. Uh, I think you're the first two-timer um, that we've had on the show. So last time you mentioned um, Space Opera, Better ah, Angels of Our Nature, yeah. Beyond Piketty, yeah. and Econobabble, which also came up in this. Yeah. So. Um, Have you got uh, any additional I've books? I've got a couple. There's one by a guy called N-U-N-N um, from uh, the University of the Sunshine Coast where he talks about how the Aborigines, the indo- Indigenous, the first peoples of Australia, there's three popular names at the moment, uh, they uh, had oral legends that survived uh, accurately for 20,000 years. That's, that's amazing. Mm. Talking about the rising of the oceans as we came out of the last ice age. I forget the name of that. Uh, and then uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. That's another good book. Great. Add them to the list. Um, and you mentioned earlier, if people want to buy your new book, Vital Science, uh, where should they go? Uh, bookshops oh, and, and online. And uh, there's an ebook as well, I'm sure. Um, do enjoy it. Uh, if you find any mistakes, do let me know. Uh, if you're the first to point out, you get a free copy of my next book, which may well have a mistake, and then you get a free copy of that, and so it goes on in, as an infinite loop. 